Members of the TalkScript team were on site at NEJSConf 2019, where we did a series of interviews with the conference speakers. We had a great time meeting these thought leaders and learning more about each of them and their talks. We've compiled the interviews into a four-part series to help share the essence of NEJSConf 2019. This episode contains interviews with Phil Hawksworth, Fred Schott, and Jeremy Wagner around the theme of rethinking how we build and deploy web applications. This is Brian, and I am with Phil Hawksworth. Phil, tell me about yourself. Where do you work? Where are you from? Okay. All right. In whatever order. Okay. Well, so, yeah, I'm Phil. I'm, I come from London, and I work for a company who are actually based in San Francisco, so I, I work remotely yeah. from my own house. We're very familiar with yeah, that. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of people yep. at, this, at this conference, I think, who are yeah, working remotely. So, like, Nick and myself and everybody that's with Saipan. We all work remote, right? Yeah. yeah. So I kind of cool. I, I I love it. So yeah. we have. So I work for a company called Netlify, who are based in San Francisco. So half of the company's there. The rest of us are kind of scattered around the right. world. So I'm I'm based in London. I work in the developer experience team there. Cool. Yeah. All right. So. Tell us about your talk today. Okay, so yeah, I did a... a thousand foot overview. Sure, yeah, yeah. yeah. So so I've been banging this drum for a little while now. I've been okay. banging the drum about the power of like, static hosting and static sites. Yeah. Kind of quote unquote. I'm doing air quotes at the moment. Yes, yes, uh, yes. I can verify you did air quotes. Thank you, yes. And really this kind of term which is becoming more popular now, which is called Jamstack. My talk was called Exploring a Serverless Web. Because yes. Jamstack overlaps very much with kind of serverless technologies. Okay. It's really focused on doing things like pre-rendering, pre-building uh, yeah. sites, rather than serving them from a dynamic server right. uh, that you have to maintain and look after and secure and all of those things. Right, right. Instead of doing that, pre-rendering all of their content and deploying those directly to a CDN. And securing so, only what you need to. Yeah, well, just if taking, taking yeah. pieces out of the puzzle so there are fewer pieces that you need to secure. So it's yeah. not so much as kind of letting your guard down, but it, but just by virtue of taking a database server out of out of the, For uh, sure. the equation, a load balancer, the web server, yeah. those are not involved in serving the requests. You're serving things directly from a CDN. So one of the things that happens where I work is that we've got build automation and kind of deployment pipelines to getting things out to a CDN as fast as possible. Yeah. The intention being that you know, with like serverless web technologies and this kind of this idea of Jamstack, if you can lower the friction in deploying, you can make a site which you might think of as static by experience. Yes. Way more dynamic because you can be deploying to it you know, many times a day or an hour if you yeah. need to because it's simple to deploy. Yeah, you show <laughs> you showed us the uh, challenge from Zach Leatherman. Yes. I kind of wanted to have him on and you could call him out here that you actually did what he Zach tweeted out that somebody needed to take on the challenge of doing a what a serverless clock. Yeah, his suggestion was to make a pre-generated statically hosted clock yes. where you're just serving static files that tell you that just have the time you know, printed into them. It's not JavaScript. It's, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's the time that they were rendered on the server. Correct. But then doing that and redeploying every minute of the day, yeah, which is ridiculous, of course. Absolutely. But, but I decided that I would take him up on the challenge. And it was kind of fun because it's because ultimately that's a... Because it's a preposterous idea, but it's a very simple thing to build. Yeah. Because really, you're building, you know, 24 pages. Each one's got the time in that time zone, so you, so you can localize yes. this. Yeah. And that's all it does. It just kind of prints the time at server time onto the page, and then you just push those to the CDN. But you, the tricky part is it in doing it every minute. Every minute, yeah. And you know, traditionally, that would be really challenging. So with traditional architectures with lots of moving parts. Deployments were a big deal. Yeah. I used to work at an agency that had lots of like big brand clients, yeah. and working with the infrastructure that they provisioned and spent a lot of money like providing yeah. is complicated. And you know, I couldn't imagine doing yeah. a deploy every day at some of the right. companies yeah. that we work with. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, and it's really challenging. I mean, I've worked at places where deploying the project that you'd worked on for you know twelve year, months, yeah. yeah, that was and a you stay hold all your weekend. breath, and it was a yeah, stay yeah, okay, cancel your plans. We're going to be deploying. We'll have a code freeze for three weeks. Keep your pager. On you. Keep your pager yeah. on you, and then you'll stand and you'll watch nervously as something takes, or however long it takes, and there's lots of moving parts. Yep, yep. And so that's one of the benefits of this model. Which the intention is to try and commoditize that, because if you're if you're building in such a way that all the hosting is effectively the same, you're serving static assets, yeah. then the challenge is in lowering that friction so you can get things to the CDN as quickly as possible. Yeah. And that is a similar challenge 
irrespective of you know what the thing is you're building. Right. So the company where I work is that's the challenge we've taken on, trying to make it as simple as possible, just to click a button and then your build runs in like a continuous integration yeah. environment and then propagates to the CDN. And when you can start to do things like triggering builds automatically, and you know that all that's going to happen is it's going to run a build script. And it's a predictable environment, same as on your local yeah, machine. Yeah, yeah. It'll just output it to a CDN. It means that deploying becomes trivial. And that's what I was kind of illustrate with that. Yeah, it hit home, but it's like, this is ridiculous. But at the same time, there's a way that this could be used. Yeah, yeah. Right? Like, like for, for the application that you build a clock, mm-hmm. that was ridiculous. Mm-hmm. But that could be used for something completely different, which was, it was, it was kind of... Like you stop and think about it and it's pretty amazing. Yeah, and I think of it as being really liberating. If you're in an engineering team that are kind of laboring over a project for months and months, you don't want to wait until the like the end of the project to get something deployed and you, know, you hold your breath and you see if it's going to work in the real environment. Right. So, of course, you end up doing things like, well, we'll create staging environments and a QA yep. environment. Uh-huh. And for that to be effective and be real yeah each of those environments have to be a perfect facsimile of exactly. the production yeah 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 so the costs go through the roof it the, stinks it yeah. stinks and very seldom do you see the environments stay yeah. in step with each other over the oh, course totally. of the project oh totally yeah 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 so they become there's something of, that is different in one of the right. environments right so you end up Inevitably. deploying something to production and that's where you've got the keep your pager on moment because it's like it's kind it of like getting into the it unknown it might break yeah because it's a new server it's right. different everything's yeah. different exactly even though it's Technically not. Right. It's still different. Yeah. yeah. And that's one of the advantages to this kind of model because what we're doing is we're, we're serving static assets. There's no yeah. moving parts at request time. So it means that we can... So yes, I was triggering with a build hook. Yeah. But you can, you can trigger deploys, and this is the most common thing, we'll be triggering deploys from Git activity. Sure. So every time you, you know, a, a commit it's is It's kind of like you do with like Travis. Exactly. Yeah. And it's kind of built into that environment. And since what it's doing is just creating a new instance of the site and each deploy is, is atomic so that, you know, it's, it only goes live when every asset is on the CDN. You never, no, get, you uh, never you get, get that. You get partial. Exactly, yeah. you never get that. And also, they're immutable. So, in other words, they don't change the state of the server. Yeah. You create a new instance of the site, if you like. And each one of those, since it's a bunch of static assets, and since it doesn't have the moving parts, it can have a URL of its own that's hashed and is unique and it lives on in perpetuity. And so then, like, within Netlify, you do the, you know, this URL goes to this hashed yeah, thing. exactly. And then the new deploy goes, and then you quickly switch it. Exactly. However that works. Ex- yeah, but yeah. you're exactly but it's, right. It's Behind similar. the scenes, yeah, that's yeah. what's happening. And since that isn't something that's exotic or particular to you as a developer... It's not really that, it, yeah. That's the thing that you can start to commoditize. And so right. that means that you're liberated to work on the things that are unusual for your project that yeah. set them apart. And so it's really nice when you can start to say, well, every deploy I'm making yeah. is effectively going to the production environment because it's the same environment. That still gives me nightmares, but at, <laughs> but at the same time, it, it, I mean, it's like, oh, like I can get my stuff out to users quicker. Exactly. Um, or you can get them to testing teams or stakeholders faster. Yeah. So you know, what we do is we, we build on top of the Git model. So since, you know, rather than reinventing lots of processes for getting things like for live, sure. and really we want version control to reach all the way to the hosting infrastructure. Yeah, absolutely. Right? Because it's version control that only goes halfway there. Yeah isn't really version control. You know, it's just... It I get, does, I get it what you're saying. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So what we do, we do as well is we'll say, if you want to have another environment, like a staging environment, sure. where, which is another kind of deploy target, mm-hmm. create a branch in Git, push your code there, yeah, and we'll so automatically create you a deployment of that on a URL which is named by your Git branch. So, so it's like a subdomain or something like yeah, that. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And so that means that you can start doing things like, well, I'll, we'll work in feature branches. So, you know, you're building out a new feature, you create a branch named that feature, you're pushing code to it, and all the, you know, from the minute you're pushing code, you've got a URL that is testable for that feature, and then when you merge it in, which is what you would do anyway, you've deployed it to production. Because then you could, then you could have specifically named branches, and then you could quickly have your QA testers or your acceptance team take a look and say, oh yeah, that looks exactly like what the acceptance criteria is yeah. go ahead and right oh and there's no recreating environments or exactly. kind of bootstrapping I think it's it's on the production URL it's effectively the same environment right well I mean I'm just talking with the subdomains and stuff yeah, yeah. I yeah. mean that's that's fascinating yeah having having addresses for things is is like the superpower of well, the web it so is. It, it is I mean, it's a lovely thing to it, use man that's pretty cool <laughs> this word static you and I were kind of talking about this before yeah right so 
when I think of a static site, I think of like my GeoCities page. Okay. Right? Yeah. Like I wrote my HTML. Well, out. Even with all the animated GIFs, you still think. <laughs> well, okay. So, but I mean, like I wrote it yeah. all out yeah. and then I had to like FTP it up. Right. And it just sat there and it didn't do anything. It didn't call any services. It might have had a form, but then that would have gone to a different page, right? And so, like, when I think static, that's what I think. We're past Web 2.0. Like, there's very little, like, in my mind, static sites that are, that are out there. Like, most sites are doing, like, some sort of Ajax call, right? Like, when you're saying static, that's not exactly what you mean. Right? Yeah, I'm, so, yeah, static is such a loaded word. Ex- well, yeah, yeah, it really yeah. is, because it puts you in mind of the experience on the site yeah. straight away. Yeah, And that's kind of one of the reasons that the term Jamstack exists is to try and get beyond that a little bit okay. because, because a static site is something which can be served directly from a CDN and static sure. assets sure. but the experience could be all sorts of things and you could be serving JavaScript as the assets that are served statically yeah. that does all kinds of things whether that's making request uh, APIs from the client side dynamically changing the UI it's the kind of things that we, we actually interact with very very often yeah and so there's lots of those things around already and so and you, yeah so when you're saying static you're not saying like i brought this up earlier you're not saying like pre-render every single permutation of everything in your database yeah and it's one of those classic it depends kind of moments because well, sure but, yeah we but, were talking about a blog right a blog it makes sense to, to, to pre-render everything yeah. i mean it, there's not much that's going to change yeah but like so you've got a million users with Profiles? Are you going to right. pre-render everything? You know, every single time something exactly. changes. Yeah, and and then you get into the kind of area of trying to decide w- whether or not it would be practical to do it. Sure. It's, it's also would it be sensible to do it, and would you want to do it? Yeah. So, for instance, if you've got a page which is either very personalized information yeah. or information that changes very rapidly anyway, yeah. do you want to render that statically for the you know the purposes of things like SEO and kind of being for spidered? Sure. Yeah. Or are those the kind of pages that, frankly, you might exclude from your SEO spidering anyway? Yeah. In which case, then, those might be contenders for parts of the site where, well, maybe we'll serve the app shell you or said, the, yeah, the, the shell, page shell, yeah. and then we'll be making requests from the you yeah. know, dynamically from the from the client side JavaScript sure. to the API for the same database that you would be otherwise thinking will request all of the data from that yeah. and generate all the static pages. There are lots of different ways that you can kind of cut these, these things up, yeah. and so I find it a kind of an interesting challenge because you know, the role that I used to do when I was in agency land was like kind of doing technical architectures, trying to figure out how we'd create the thing that yeah. we pitch to a client. And more and more, I found myself trying to take the approach of, okay, by default, I'm just going to assume that everything we're going to do is going to be static, yeah. unless I run into a roadblock that says this absolutely can't. Has to, this has to be. This Which, has to be a call to a server. Yeah, but, and it's, and, and it's and interesting how yeah. far you can go with that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And for it, sure. And it's and you don't really discover that until you kind of flip that model because previously I'd be saying okay well the best in class is to use this kind of language on this kind yeah. of infrastructure we'll use MVC MVVM exactly blah, blah, and it's, yeah. it's the hammer that you go looking for an L with yeah, and, then, well, yeah, totally. right? and that works that's great yeah, but, but, works. The, but the number of times that I, I kind of when I thought about it again so actually there's no part of this that needs to be dynamic we're going to be updating this site twice over the course of a campaign like yeah. it'll maybe like in two weeks time and another four weeks time it'll change even if it changed once a day doing a deployment once a day is trivial so yeah you showed us if you're doing it right I have to believe this that the deploy should be pretty quick you showed us a demo right of your lolly in the United States we call them popsicle uh, maybe popsicle yes yes yeah. Putting a lolly in the freezer and sending it to somebody. Right. It was a completely static site. It made some calls back to yep. actually a Netlify URL, yep. which then stored something in the database. Yes. And then made a deploy of the changed content yep. to the static site. Yeah. And then within less than five seconds, the deploy was done. And I mean, you even missed it. You were like, oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, it first redirected. It me out. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. At first, it redirected you to an actual dynamic page. Yes. Yeah. Which is right? hitting the API directly. Which is hitting the API directly, yeah. right? Which you had to do. Yeah. But then you were like, see, I can I can refresh this and we'll go to the dynamic API. And the deploy was done by Yeah. Me. Yeah. Right? So it was kind of like, it was interesting to see that, wow, this deploy can actually go pretty darn fast. Yeah. And, you know, in fairness, it was a, it's a simple kind of demo was, site. And, yeah, I, and but, I, you know, I've been playing, playing with it for a little while. So I had, I don't know, like, it's only like 60, 80 pages that sure. I on that. And of course, 
the more pages you get, the longer your build is going to take. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But static site generators are getting really fast now. Yeah. And that's that's kind of the kind of next frontier for static site generators, speeding up the time to build and starting to do things like partial or incremental builds. That's a difficult problem to yeah. solve. Yeah, yeah. But it's it's interesting. People are making some uh, some good headway into that. That's pretty cool. But just by dint of having a static site generator that can can generate, you know, tens of thousands of pages very very rapidly. In seconds. Yeah. This becomes you know a model that's suitable for many things not everything but yeah. a lot more things than we might have expected yeah and you know you mentioned wordpress sites earlier on yeah yeah they're a perfect candidate for this because for sure. they are they are right occasionally read often yeah definitely, right? definitely. so the idea why that, hit the database all the time? why hit the database yeah. you know the, the notion of every request to your your blog going and hitting the database and then doing something dynamic and requesting that it's overkill. Oh, know? for sure. So those are the perfect contender for saying, okay, we'll generate those when the content changes, yeah, and then we'll never need to worry about maintaining the server and keeping yeah, the exactly. lights on. You know, I've, yeah. I've got too many servers that went dusty, and then I couldn't maintain them anymore. Oh, for sure. Which is yeah. why I went looking for something that's different. Yeah, exactly. And that was that was one point that you made, which really hit home to me was with a serverless architecture. Even if you're doing your, like, even if I was to host rather than use Net, Netlify or CDN, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Even if I was just to host it on my own domain, yep. like, let's just say I have an Nginx server, all I'm maintaining is that. Mm-hmm. I'm not maintaining a PHP socket plus a MySQL server or a right. MySQL Postgres, yep. whatever. On the back end, a lot fewer points of attack. Yeah. Security wise, this makes sense. Yeah. And also just in terms of responding to load. If you're having to think about that happy day when you get like tons and tons of traffic come in a short period of time, you know, like any day now. <laughs> yeah, and then your, your database crashes. Yeah, yeah. If, you're, if you're serving things that are static files that you're just responding to URLs, then immediately that scales much more quickly. Oh, yeah, totally. And if you're starting to think about how things work in a CDN when, when everything is just there ready to go. Yeah. You're kind of cached by default. That's just the, the yeah, starting sure. point. Yeah. So yeah, it's a it's a different model, but it's a it takes a slight adjustment in the way you think about architecting things. Yeah, but it's definitely starting to gain a bit of traction now, and it's well, easier to persuade people that you, know, you could try it this way now. Yeah, well, and, and I mean, even to those of us who have been writing single page applications for ten years. Mm-hmm. This isn't new, you know. That, no. Something I included in my talk was like Aaron Swartz talking about pre-rendering and serving things statically in 2002. The yeah. thing that's changed is the tooling and the services that really make this really viable. So when you were just talking about my kind of lollipop example that hit a database, yeah, that's not my database. There's no database in Netlify. There are loads of providers now who do databases yeah, yeah, yeah. as a service where you can get like very cheap or you know for often oftentimes next to free, certainly for experimenting with them get a, an API to a database that you never have to maintain. And that's mm-hmm. the doing away with the server that comes along to this notion of well, servers, for sure. yeah, right? Yeah. It's like, it's someone else's problem. I'm just going to be hitting an API and yeah. I get the value of a database now. So those kind of tools and those kind of services, the fact that they exist now and things like, like search, you can do this way yeah. and authentication, all those kind of things, yeah. they unlock all kinds of potential that that's the thing that's exciting rather than just the modeling. And you can focus on, I think you said this in your talk, you can focus on the problem. You, yeah, your problem rather than yeah, your the, problem yeah. rather than the problem of the architect of, of right. the who's going to maintain all this stuff. Yeah, because yeah. that, that way you can differ, you can really think about how you differentiate yeah. rather than okay, well, we've got to figure out how we keep our service performant. Yeah, I mean that used to be. I mean, that, I guess that still is a point of differentiation. It, it but is. but if that's a that ought to be a solved problem. Yeah, you know, it shouldn't be that we reinvent that every time we tackle a project. You know, if that is a solved problem and then we can step back and say, okay, well, what's the thing that I'm making that's adding value? That's what gets me excited. Because then that's when creativity starts to kind of spring forward. Yeah, no, that's great. That's great. Thanks for sitting and talking with me, Phil. Thanks for having me. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. So make sure to check out Phil's talk and (laughs) we'll talk to you next time. Nice. I am here with Fred Schott from Pika and I just listened to his talk. Give me a rundown of what Pika is and kind of what a little bit of what you talked about today. Sure thing, I'd be happy yeah, to. Yeah. yeah, thanks for having me on. Though. Absolutely, really excited absolutely. To talk about it. 
Pika is a project to move the JavaScript ecosystem forward. So what I mean by that is it's looking at all these different developments and, and things that have been created in the last 10 years and then taking those and seeing if we can apply them to web development in a different way. The biggest thing we're looking at is modern web modules. So ES modules, that syntax. It's this new syntax. It's supported in the browsers. The browsers can load yeah. different files themselves. What we're looking at is how does that change web development? So, Absolutely. So what does that mean for bundling? What does that mean for working in development and in production? Yeah. There's a lot of really cool stuff that you can do when the browser actually understands a native syntax. Right, right. So right now, as it kind of stands today, the, the popular way to deliver JavaScript to your browser is to use some sort of bundler, Yeah, right? Webpack, like, Parcel, web, Create React App. Any of those, you know, it, it takes your, your JavaScript and gloms it all together and then sends it, you know, you either put it to the file system and then serve it out or yep. like in development, you've got a dev server that does all that for you. What's different about Pika? So what Pika tries to answer is why do we need bundlers, right? Yeah, yeah. It's one of those things that you know, I, I don't think since like maybe jQuery that like everyone uses a bundler. And that comes from an actual need, an actual requirement. It's not just cargo culted. It really comes from the fact that we want to use NPM packages. And NPM packages have traditionally been written for Node. So it's a server-side module format. Yeah. You know, those require calls and module.exports. If you've seen those, those are that's all server-side code. It would never actually run in the browser. Right. But it's a huge ecosystem that's only grown and grown and grown. So that's a huge resource to tap into. As, sure. uh, as web developers. Which is what happened, what, hitting on like seven years? Yeah. Seven to ten years ago, where jQuery really said, we're going to use NPM as our package, right. as our registry. And that's really when the web kind of infiltrated, right, so to speak. Right. Like, oh, uh, this is a serious... Yeah, yeah, exactly. It kind of infiltrated the Node community, yeah. so, to, so to speak. And of course now, you know, NPM does these surveys, and I think like 95% of oh, NPM sure. users are, yeah. are using it for the web. So it's yeah. a huge use case. But the problem is it's a, it's a web ecosystem that is built for the server. So yes. what we as web developers have to do is add all this tooling. So that's where that comes from, is all these bundlers really got as popular as they are, as required as they are, because they are the only way to use this huge ecosystem of packages right. on the web. Yeah, you've got, like you were saying, you've got server-side code that's got to run on the browser, so there's got to be some sort of, like a shim between what the web expects and what... Yeah, it's is all there, written yeah. assuming that you can do these really quick lookups of a package by yeah. name or a file path yeah. that on the web, you know, it's just not. <laughs> right, that's a, that's exactly. That's a network request yep. uh, at, its, at its most it, basic. And so it was, it was so funny because as you were doing your, your talk and you're, you're going kind of through the timeline, it's like, yep, I remember that pain point. Yep. I remember where we got there. I remember the AMD versus Common JS discussions yeah. on the list. And one of the guys at SitePen at the time, Chris Zipe, hmm. was trying to push for a more browser-friendly. Yeah. Those were some interesting discussions they, that I they only were, 10 years later right. found. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And it was just, I'm like, yep, CommonJS, I remember that. Yeah. And, and we knew you're not going to be able to use CommonJS on the browser. Yeah. And the browser if I came along. Yeah. And then that kind of morphed into, I don't remember if Webpack was a fork of it or if it was a complete rewrite, but it was the same idea. Yeah, around the same time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so, I mean, today we have Webpack, yeah. and it's been changed. And yeah. It's gotten be it's gotten a lot better. Oh, and it's so powerful. I mean, you can do so much with yeah, those. That's, you that's, really can. It's, it's not for lack of, of, of use, but it is a trade-off that everyone agreed to make, which is that, okay, we will add tooling to access these NPM packages. Exactly, so yeah. So we, we're already doing this in production. We're already bundling, and you know, this was before HTTP2. So yeah. you really had to bundle in production or do some sort of file concatenation. Yeah. This was like, a, oh, okay, just do that in development, too. And the benefit is that you get what is now a million packages at your disposal. And sometimes a million packages that you don't need. Yes. Or 900,000 that you don't need, right? <laughs> right, that are um, all uh, node-specific or, exactly, or doing or, something. Or for the process. tooling. Yeah. yeah, I'm on a project right now. It's an Angular app. And when you do an NPM install, it pulls down 1,500 packages. Yeah. yeah. And I know I don't have 1,500 pa yeah. packages in my browser as I'm running this app. Right. It's kind of mind-blowing. Yeah, Create React App is, I think, 200 megabytes last time I checked. Yeah, so. I, haven't, I haven't even looked at the size of, of Node modules. Yeah, yeah I haven't looked at the size of, size of the Node modules. Right. I'm kind of afraid. On Windows, it yeah. takes a minute to, that, to delete. That's what the beginner, the beginner story is then, okay, you have to use this complicated tooling, but we're going to abstract it away so that you never have to so worry you don't about have, it. Yeah. So that's, they and, get everything installed for free. Yeah. God forbid it ever stops working. Right. Or you want to do something custom. Right. Yeah. And I think, to their credit, a lot of these projects have made it easy to use the tooling. Angular CLI, Dojo CLI, all these CLI tools, yeah. they're great. They hide all, that, all yeah. that stuff away, and that's a good thing. Definitely. But at the same time, there's still a lot there to learn. Yeah. It's not just 
write some code, and then throw it at a web server, and then pull it right. down. Pika's whole thing that it's exploring really is that it's great for tooling. Like a great tool should be really easy to use, yeah. and really simple to use as a beginner, but also be really powerful and complex. Right. But the easiest tool to use is still the one that doesn't exist, or the one that is way more focused, way less complex, and really simple. I mean, the easiest tool to use is the browser. Yes. The browser is really efficient at caching. It's really, exactly. now it has a module system that can load asynchronously. Exactly. It's good at its job, yeah. right? It, it parses CSS right. well. It parses JavaScript well. Yeah. It's what it's supposed to do, right? <laughs> yeah. Hopefully, it parses yeah. it well. It's and all of them now support the ES module syntax. All the modern ones all the, the modern last two ones. years. Correct. So the two notable holdouts are IE11 and UC Browser. In China. And, and which, what's, what was the second one? IE 11 and UC Browser. Okay. So those two still do not. So if you need to target IE 11, older users. Which older some apps, enterprise users will have. To definitely. Right. This is definitely not trying to be the tool for everyone today, but sure. it is trying to look yeah. towards that future. But like you were saying, and we used to do this, you would develop for like Firefox. Right. And then there was a phase where you would then go and run it in IE 6. <laughs> Do you remember IE6? I remember the celebration when we when killed our IE6 support of IE6. Yeah, I remember yes. our company, we, we threw a party. We threw a party, yeah, exactly. It was a great day. There was yeah. much rejoicing. <laughs> and so we'd do it in Firefox because it had Firebug. Then we would go and run it. We would do a production build yeah. and then run it in IE6 so it didn't have to do all the XHRs and script injections. And right. it, would just, it would just do it, right? I could see somebody doing that for IE11 now yeah. where, because you said, you know, Pika's not against bundling, but... What I think is awesome about Pika is that in the development phase, the compile step is F5. Yeah. You know, and so if you change your code, you don't have to wait for the the, the web server to, to bundle it back right. up, and you don't have to have tooling to yeah. do an incremental build. Right. There's no hot module. There's reloading. no hot. There's no hot module reloading. It's just I just hit F5, and there's my my recompile, and I love that yeah. because that's the that's what the browser is designed to do. Right. And then for production builds, you could you could bundle that up and then have IE11 do you know load the bundles right right yeah because um, the big idea is that if you're developing locally, you shouldn't it shouldn't take that long to no. reload the app. It's all a file system essentially running exactly. through some sort of local dev server proxy. So yeah, and I mean if that takes seconds to load, then you have a bigger issue or maybe something else you don't want to look at. Right. I mean to to be honest with you, you should just be able to throw Apache or Nginx over the top of your modules. Yeah. Hit refresh and go. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm super excited. It's about really this. exciting. I want, I want all my projects to yeah. come out, right? Yeah, please, yeah. Do um, try it out. So, it's, no, it's an so exciting cool. new world. You uh, mentioned one thing, which was that it's not against bundling. And uh, a big important yeah. part there is you, that... You did point that out in your, out in your talk. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's that, you know, if this isn't for you or if you think that, you know, if you're worried about performance, anything. Yeah. You know, you can still use this Pika story for your development and mm -hmm. then throw a bundler for the production stuff. Exactly, So yeah. similar to what you were talking about, how, like, IE got the kind of production bundle. You could to test on, yeah, to yeah. test on. You could certainly do the same thing where you just throw a bundler on top for maybe older browsers or maybe a legacy. You, know, you can do a modern and a legacy build. Yeah, exactly. There's some interesting things you can do where your development experience gets dramatically sped up. Exactly. But you can still support uh, yeah. production users on any browser. Well, and even in production, so one thing that we've that we've experienced is there's always a hit when you when you go and fetch something. Mm -hmm. There's a DNS lookup. There's yeah. all that stuff, right? And so, like bundling your code. You're going to incur less of that, especially on a large app with a lot of modules, right? Yep. So in production, I could see bundling, but in dev, there's no reason to do that. It's right. all it's all local. Yep. You don't have to go out to your yeah. DNS and hit it. It's just a, a local host lookup. Yeah, and I and I um, should I should be clear. Even the production performance story is pretty good. And yeah, HTTP two lets you oh, parallelize sure. yeah, all your requests. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And the caching efficiency of what happens when okay, I've, I'm pushing a new deploy on. I only change two files. Sure. Your users then have a whole site cache except for two files they need to go out. And exactly. Grab. Yeah. Rather than a two megabyte bundle. Right, and anytime you make one small one little change, small change, change a comment even just exactly. throw it all out. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Yeah, uh, it's a really I'm, interesting world. Man, I am super excited for that. Yeah, well, please check it out. Try Dude, it. Dude, this is, this is great. Yeah. So thanks for the talk, and thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. All right, I am here with Jeremy Wagner. And he just got done doing a talk on responsible JavaScript. It's based on a series of articles I, I'm writing for a list apart by the same name. And in, in my talk, I kind of described it as a collection of ideas and techniques for how to get faster on the web and also be a little bit more accessible by reining in our use of JavaScript. So yeah, the talk was really just about like 
getting your Babel configs uh, a little bit like tighter to generate less code, oh, using awesome. differential serving to yeah. serve like modern smaller bundles to like browsers yeah. that pretty much most people use. Yeah. Uh, so we're shipping less transforms. Talked about client hints, which is really cool. I kind of just went all over the place. Yeah. No, it was good. I liked it because it was it was this like. Here's these things that you need to look into. I'm giving you like these teasers. Right, right. right. It was awesome. Yeah, so, yeah. Thank um, you. I wanted to hit on on a couple of those. I mean, you talked about accessibility, but when you talked about accessibility, you weren't really talking. There was a little bit about right, right. like accessibility, like Alley, right, right, right. But but it wasn't. You touched on that, like right. using semantic rather than using divs everywhere. Yeah. Which I wanted to like jump up and yell, <laughs> "Amen!" Right? Because accessibility is huge. If you want to get any sort of government contract, you've got to be accessible. Mm -hmm. And not only that, I think it's the responsible thing to do to make mm -hmm. your site accessible, sorry for the pun, to as, as wide of, a, of yeah. a base as possible. Why not include that, whatever percentage of people it is, and allow them to use your site? You know? Right. And so, to me, that comes down to ethics, yeah, which for sure, for is sure. not always compatible with yeah. business concerns and like uh, yeah. what we like in just just making money it takes time to do accessibility right right and, and time is money and time is money but what i would often counter that with is that if you put that effort in and you make things more accessible and more performant it actually is in line with your business practices Absolutely. the I problem agree. is though is that well, it's a difficult thing to do and the difficult things are things that tend not to get prioritized yeah. in teams if you think about it from the beginning it's easier than trying to shim it in on the, on the backside. Yeah, I, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, some things you can, you know, some bugs are, they don't take very long. Like, oh, I have to adjust this color contrast. Sure. Or maybe yeah, I have to use these. yeah. But the really deep systemic things that yeah. affect both performance and accessibility are extremely difficult to sort of refactor if you've had a code base that's been sitting yep. for years and years Agreed. and you've never thought about yeah. those things. I mean, you, you mentioned using spans instead of, like using buttons. So your recommendation, use a button instead of a span. Yeah. Like use a form when you're, like use a form tag when you're making a form. Right. Like and it's not, like those sorts of things are responsible. They're, it's not that hard. You just... It's knowledge. And so, yeah, 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 yeah. And some people may think that that particular example where it was just like a div that had an input with like no like label elements or didn't even use a form. Some people might think that's contrived. And what I would say to that is that then you haven't seen it in the field. I've seen that everywhere. Yeah, I see it a lot. And the odd thing is that that was a fight to get that fixed. And right, because so I'm not sure why. So, so what he's talking about was in in his talk, and what was cool was he showed this slide, and there was a ton of code on it. Yeah, and it was all to do stuff that the browser already does. Right, and then a couple slides later, he shows, look, all you have to do is change this to a form, this to a label, this to an input, this to a button. Well, you didn't change the input, but you changed it to a type equals email. Yeah, 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 and all of the code that was in there, it just went away. It went away, and it was. It was. It's like this was a tangible thing. I thought it was a good example. I appreciate it because I've again I've seen that where it's like, oh well, these are easier to style, right? Well, okay, but what are you losing in the process? Right. So a lot of the concerns around that tend to be, well, the messaging needs to look a certain way. Like if there's an error with the validation, and it's like, okay, I get that, and there are accessible ways to mark that up and do those things. But it takes a certain amount of client-side script. It takes a certain amount of extra, you know, component work yeah. to, like, get those messages to display and all that. It really is just a lot simpler from an accessibility standpoint to use those things. Yeah. Um, because when you use something like VoiceOver, it will signal what's wrong yeah. as you use those forms. And it's like, yep. oh, you forgot to fill out this field. You must provide an email address. It's simple clear mm -hmm. it makes it to the, that assistive technology well and that's that's the thing is and i don't want to get into the accessibility yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> i mean because but it's as simple as most developers these days have a mac or a windows 10 yeah open up the accessibility tools mm -hmm. run voiceover on your site exactly that's i mean it's not like you have to buy a license for jaws like you used to right right i mean um, it's, it's there and the the accessibility inspectors in browsers now yes. are really great like i found myself like finding little opportunities like for example on my website i had like a double colon that was like a nav item separator mm. and i was like oh i probably shouldn't expose that to the screen reader because right. it's a design element and it doesn't kill accessibility but Correct. It's, the vo voiceover would read it 
and it'd be like, well, that's unnecessary. That's weird, yeah. Like, but like the accessibility inspector is so great because it enabled me to find those little things yeah, and fine yeah, absolutely, tune. absolutely. So moving on from accessibility, yeah, yeah. you just talked about how like there's all this extra stuff, and that was one of the things that that stood out to me coming from a dojo background, right, right. thinking about like layering, and I mean, now we've got. Webpack, uh, we talked with Fred Shot earlier yeah, yeah. about Pika. And the idea of we don't need to send everything to every client. Right. You know, and this, this idea that when we're looking at our bundles, if one file changes in that bundle, then that changes the bundle and the browser right. has to redownload everything. Yeah. Kind of this, on the same token, two sides of the same coin. There we go. Right, right. You were kind of talking about how sometimes we generate this JavaScript, and we don't even think about what it's generating and we're sending stuff. Yeah, how it gets transformed. Yeah, like, yeah. We write this really beautiful, like, well-organized code that uses all these modern features, and then, and this is no flies on Babel because it's it's a necessary tool. Sure. But, well, and so, and, and then TypeScript does the same thing, too. Right, right. Yeah. It's, but when it transforms that stuff, it does it in a way to be as broadly as compatible as possible. Sure. And that's good, that's what we want. But some of those transforms can be pretty expensive. There was an example in the talk where I showed what it takes to transform an ES6 class syntax yeah. to uh, well, the, transform, right, that yeah, transforms to... Oh, yeah, to, the class syntax. I was thinking the default. Right, well, the default parameters was one thing, but, like, that class syntax gets blown way up. And if you yeah. don't think about, like, well, maybe I should install Babel Runtime to deduplicate these helpers, and or maybe I can try this. If you don't think about that and you're using, like, all these classes all over the place... That gets it blows. Real, it blows. Your it size blows up. Yep. up. It gets big really quickly. For sure. Yeah. Your talk with with Fred's talk was just. I mean, they're like. Yeah, I felt <laughs> like they kind of. I caught a, a part of his, and I felt like it dovetailed pretty well. And yeah. I had always like heard about Pika, and I was like, I really should like be paying more attention to this because I feel like it's in my wheelhouse. But like, yeah. I needed it kind of explained to me a little totally bit. yeah yeah and like he did an explanation but i was like duh like awesome like yeah. now i now well, i might what, try this well, so so what was really cool was that fred in his talk is like you know we have modern browsers just serve modules and you're like hey guess what we have modern browsers stop transpiling yeah, yeah stop transpiling your code and just serve the <laughs> right serve the code that we that you want so what's great is that that means there's more than one way to get there if you don't want to I can understand some people, like Fred said in his talk, that some people just, they put the time in to learn the bundler. Webpack and, and other bundlers are not always very simple. They're not sure. always the easiest things to yeah. learn. But they're valuable tools. And if you don't want to drop Webpack from your build pipeline, I don't blame you. It, it does a valuable thing. But that means you're going to have to take a different path to generate that yeah. largely untranspiled code. Or if you're starting a new project, you're going to be able to have that ability to say, well, do I want to use yeah. the bundler? Or maybe does Pika make more sense yeah, in this yeah. case? In your talk, you brought up some statistics. I had cited a MIT technology review article. And then in that article, there was some research from Pew Research that had said that one third of American adults across the country do not have access to internet that's any faster than dial-up. Than dial-up, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's huge. You know, you think how much that we depend on the web to do. Yeah. You know, that's like really like critical. Like we do our banking. Like as I mentioned in the talk, like some people rely on the web to apply for and get information on critical services. and, yep. and uh, Or even needs. applying for jobs. Right, like yeah. applying for jobs. Yeah, there's the big one, applying for jobs, so you know that you can you can lift yourself out. And yeah, like, some places don't even have, you, you can't even fill out a job application anymore, you have to go online. Right, yeah. like, and so that, imagine being somebody who's just stuck in a place that is not served well by broadband yeah. or at all. And, most of the time, people in these situations are relying on mobile internet connections rather than, than dial-up, yeah. which can still be spotty and probably not as fast. Absolutely. And a lot of times, they'll have like data caps and stuff like that. And that's really challenging. Yeah. You know, because then overages start to cost real money. Yep, yep. I mean, you outlined several different ways that you can kind of serve to older browsers as well as... Modern, yeah. Well, older versus modern, but also... There's a technique, and I want to hit on this in just a minute. You called it differential serving. That's, I believe. that's kind of the but, community term for it. Yeah, yeah. And that's that's fine. But yeah. like, where I wanted to go with this was, I mean, even amongst U.S. citizens, the older devices are cheaper. Yeah, and they're not gonna they're not gonna update the the operating system, so they're not gonna have a modern browser. Yep. 
browsers are evergreen modern extent. Modern-ish. Right. Right. Well, it's more about the the underlying hardware because as long as it's an Android or an iOS device, um, they're still going to have access to the App Store to be able to update browsers. Okay. And you're right. Like, if they're sufficiently old, then the underlying operating system might not update. And that might actually have limiting factors that we don't think about. Like, there might not be, I don't know, like, on on a lower level, talking about, like, how TCP is handled and stuff like that. Like, optimizations in that part of the stack might not get there. But... It's really the focus on the limited amount of memory and mm. processing okay. that these devices have and how that really becomes difficult to overcome, yeah. especially with the state of JavaScript as it is yeah. now. The other thing is I think about different industries. Eric and I were talking yesterday about the medical industry. Yeah. And, I mean, the pace at which they upgrade their hardware is... It's dog slow. It's dog slow. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you're a family care provider out in you know the middle of Iowa, right? You're focused on your patients, mm-hmm. not on updating all of the computers, which is going to cost however much money that is going to be, right? Right. There are ways to serve both modern and something for like IE11, right? You know, you talked about the the type equals module versus the no module, right? Right. Which I thought was I hadn't seen that before, right? So the unfortunate reality of of differential serving is that it's not the tide that raises all boats. Oh, for sure. Like legacy browsers are still going to get all of that extra code, mm-hmm. which is unfortunate, and it's that's just the kind of limitation we have to live with because the reason why IE11 gets used so often in those industries, like in healthcare and in governance and all that other stuff, is because they're using like IE11 will integrate. Like has integrations into the operating system yep. that IT departments have depended on, yeah, absolutely. and they can't just get away yeah, away yeah. from it. Yeah, you know? and so it's unfortunate that that technique can't work. But I think some other techniques, plus just regular auditing, can mm-hmm. help to help get things a little bit faster. So you talked about one of those techniques when you're generating your your Babel bundles. Yeah, yeah. Can you kind of go? You're talking the differential serving thing? No, no, no. I'm or, talking about like the how you configure it to not include. Oh, so, so with like the core JS. And yeah, that yeah, yeah, yeah. So there are a couple of uh, options in preset M that are not on by default, and they probably shouldn't be because defaults really should be safe versus optimal sometimes for broadened compatibility. But there are two options. One is use built-ins and. It's not normally specified, but it has two possible values, I believe. One is entry. Where you Which spe- is the default. Right. Well, it's not the default. I mean, or, a, lot, a lot of people I've seen it will have it set okay. as entry, and they'll put CoreJS as an entry point to their application. That will bring in a ton of extra polyfills. All, basically all of CoreJS. I believe what you so. need, Like what you specify in the... Well, it depends on what gets shaken out. I'm, yeah, yeah. I'm not an expert on under the hood. Like, You're fine. But... but I'm not either. Can you tell? <laughs> but well, yeah. Here we are. But there is another alternative to that option, or a, an alternative value that's called usage. And what it does is, rather than having CoreJS as an entry point, it will look at the features you use in your code and only polyfill based on like your targets, like your browser's list yeah, query. Yeah. And so that can get things a little bit faster. And then there's loose and smaller. Right, and smaller. Then there's loose mode, which generates transforms that they adhere less strictly to the ECMAScript spec. Yeah, yeah. Which Strictness to the spec is important to a degree, but generally speaking, like if you're using Babel like to deal with JSX, you can generally safely enable this without without issues because yeah, yeah. you really only have to worry about this, I believe, in my experience, when you move like if you move a project from transpiled JavaScript, meaning Babelfied, to untranspiled, meaning all right, we're not gonna transform our code, we're just gonna minify it now or like uglify it. In that case, you can have some weird unexpected behavior, but in some cases, I've seen loose mode knock as much as ten percent off of a bundle. Right, and I would say and that's huge. That's huge, and I would say that maybe it's not a bad idea to enable it, and then if you move away from Babel later on to tackle those issues in a sprint. Like yeah, you were talking in, about that. Yeah. Right, if you run into compatibility issues. Yeah, and so then the next one you hit on was differential survey, and this is well, yeah, yeah. This was really Alex Russell had tweeted something out. Was it the beginning of this week? Yeah, he and, had a thread. And yeah, it was just kind of about the state of JavaScript. Yeah, and, and, and how we're not getting there. Right. Yeah. Well, and and in in it, he was saying something about how like serving different things based on different browsers. Yep. And I replied back, and I'm just like, I really hope you're not using browser sniffing. <laughs> oh, UA sniffing. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you were yeah you were trying to catch him. <laughs> well, I didn't, well, I'm just like so. Explain to us how this differential okay. serving works because it's not UA sniffing. No, it's not. Thank you. <laughs> Thankfully. Right yeah, now. Yes, yes. So the way that it works is that aside from generating two different bundles, the way that you actually serve that JavaScript is there's a platform provided pattern that uses the script tag. 
So for each bundle, you're actually going to generate two different script tags sure. or put two different script tags in your in your HTML. And one is for your modern bundle. It will have type equals module, which indicates the browser, this is a module, so you should grab this. And then you'll have a corresponding script tag next to it for a legacy version of that yep. bundle. But that script tag will have no module on it. And sure. modern browsers will see that and go, ah, I don't want that. Yeah, don't even to, grab it. I won't yeah. even grab it. I'll ignore it. But legacy browsers don't understand. This is in theory because there are some, there are some pitfalls here. Legacy, <laughs> legacy browsers theoretically are not supposed to, well, they don't understand no module. And so they'll grab that script. But they're supposed to look at the type attribute yeah. of module and, yeah, yeah. and say, I don't understand this. I don't want it. Right. In practice, that's not what happens. So what I've of seen. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> it, what I've seen in IE11 and I think every version of Edge up until it switched over to Chromium yeah. is actually they'll double download. Like they'll download modern and legacy. In some particularly bad cases, we'll actually double execute. Which makes it worse, but there is a way around it. So, like the way that I've gotten around this, and I use this with my clients, and it's in production, and it, we've had no problems with it that I can tell. But it, I will say it's a hack: is I will look at the uh, the HTML script element, like the interface, yeah, and I will check to see if it supports no module. So I'll do like if no module in yeah. HTML script element. And what I do is I infer that if a browser understands no module, it understands type equals module. Okay. It's sort of a weird, you know, inference I'm making. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then in that case, then I dynamically inject a script because then legacy browsers will look at that and go, "Well, I don't understand no module at all." Yeah, yeah. So I'm just gonna like inject this legacy script instead. Right, right. And that works pretty well. I have an article on my website, Jeremy.codes. Uh, it's a really short stub that kind of explains the problem and then shows the pattern. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So then in up-and-coming browsers, even browsers that are in production, you were talking about how you can kind of inspect or you kind of know what the browser is, memory limits, throughput, yep. what type of... Kind of explain how, how that works. Oh, so this is a... This was, this was cool because this, yeah, yeah. this was what I was kind of... Like, I, I didn't know was actually a thing a thing yeah, yeah. that was like live in browsers and it's been now, around for a now while. alex's reply to me when i asked him about ua sniffing it makes way more sense because yeah. i'm like how are they doing any of this stuff so in this case and this is only available in chromium derived browsers so it includes edge so it's the majority of users out there by browser share have this technology called client hints yeah yeah and so hints. client hints are these like indicators that describe the characteristics of a user's device, like screen size, so you can access it outside of JavaScript. Yeah. Screen size, memory, uh, yep. what they're really coarse values to prevent fingerprinting. For sure. And then there are, the ones I really like are the network characteristics. Yes. So you'll have things like RTT, it'll give you the approximate return trip time for a resource. Downlink, it'll give you the approximate downstream in kilobits Correct. per second. Then there's like this really coarse one called effective connection type. Which I think is cool. Yeah. I it, like this one. Yeah. It sort of evaluates both RTT and downlink and then coarsely defines the yeah, yeah. connection the user is on. And like the fastest categorization is 4G, then there's 3G, and then 2G, and 2G slow. And I feel like if you can use all of these things and like sort of like combine them, you can really finely tailor the experience to say, well, this user's on a fast-ish connection. Maybe we won't send web fonts. Yes. Or maybe the user's on a dog slow connection. Maybe we'll just give not. Them, we'll give just them, give them. Just give them HTML. We'll just give them the text. Yeah. Right? And, and you show you showed a, a screenshot of this. Yes. Of like a rich experience and a versus a stripped down. A stripped down. Yeah, yeah. It was, and. Both looked very nice. Yeah, yeah. So, it didn't. It didn't look like you know, like a rich HTML versus Gopher, right? <laughs> right. No, it didn't look like here's Usenet. Yeah, exactly. Snippets, yeah, yeah. Here's a like, bulletin board, right? <laughs> oh man, that dated me. How how many people know about Usenet? So? <laughs> I do. <laughs> I do. <laughs> yeah, it's super great. I call it adaptive performance because yes, you can you can adapt to a user's shifting network conditions, and I believe it does a great job of enabling developers to create inclusive experiences. Yes. There are some privacy concerns around it that like you, people are... You mentioned the fingerprint. The whole people are a little worried about that, but what I would say is that what client hints provide doesn't give like trackers appreciably more ability to target you because a lot what of what they already have. Right, because a lot of that stuff is present in JavaScript. Like for instance, like window.innerwidth is like been around forever to yeah. tell you the width of the browser. For sure. The screen size hint, or I forget what it's called, viewport width, is not going to give a tracker any more information than they already have. Yeah. 
But there are some things like device memory, which, but that is so coarse, it's like the possible values are eight, four, and two. So you're not getting like a really so like- So eight is like eight or greater. Eight or more, and then like sort of, so it's not perfect in that way, but I don't see the privacy concerns quite yet, but people a lot smarter and more thoughtful I was gonna say, than me I was gonna say, yeah. have kind of resisted implementation of this in other browsers, and it's kind of being discussed a little bit. Yeah. I hope it sees adoption, but I also trust the... I mean, even if know, even if they leave out some of the ones that are... Yeah, I, I trust specifiers to make the right decisions in this yeah, case, sure. because I don't write specs because I'm not talented like that. That yeah. is really deep, hard work, and so... I hope it gets implemented, but for now it's available in like probably sixty percent of browsers out there. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Well, and then again, going going back to Fred Fred's talk, and not to, but I mean, no, it's reasonably it's comparable. I know, but like you could combine like some sort of server technology and serve like a different entry point module based on those headers, which then has different. You know, it pulls in different modules and such. I mean, this is really cool stuff. Yeah, it's. It's, it really no, makes the cool. work. It makes the work more exciting because, as a web developer, I don't want to just ship stuff. Yeah. I mean, I want to ship stuff, but I want to like ship things the right way. Like, I want to ship. I want to think about ethics and like what we're doing. Yeah, and, yeah. And that's that's the hard part of our job. It's easy to just go into a job and write code and ship it and be done with it. Yeah. But like I said in the talk, if you put something out on the web, you kind of have to be a steward of that thing, and that you takes, really do. That takes work. And that's that's something that I don't think a lot of people think of is that. As a developer, I'm always trying to think about the person that's coming after me. Uh-huh. I'm not going to be seconds of consultancy. Yeah. We're not going to be working with this company forever. Forever. Yeah. I want to think about the person that comes after me and what they're going to have to do to my code, right? Or do with my code, you know, with the with the whole like div button yeah. form thing. Like you do that right the first time, they don't have to worry about it later on. Right. So to your point, stewardship is more. It's a two-sided thing you yeah. know, that, that involves being a steward for what you put on the web in the interest of users, but then also being a steward for writing code that other developers can understand yeah. and guides them and their ethical principles of yeah. how to create faster web experiences. Agreed, agreed. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So, well, thanks for sitting down with me. Yeah. This was great. Thank Your you talk for... was awesome. If you guys get to, check out Jeremy's talk. Phenomenal talk. If you absolutely can't wait for the videos from NEJS to come out, I did a version of it at uh, NDC Oslo. If you just search NDC Oslo Responsible JavaScript on Sweet. YouTube, you can find it. But the one I gave here is like more condensed, so I think it'll okay. be a bit more palatable. Yeah, yeah, it was good. Cool. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, dude. Yep. We've got a good thing going on. Bah, 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 bah.